Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Grace Rancho. Woo! Grace Rancho. How do you, you know, you can't say that, Grace Rancho. You know, how do you say, like it says, Grace Rancho. How do, you, how do you do that around here? I don't know. Well, what a joy it is to be with you. It is thrilling to be here at this church at Grace Rancho. One reason it's so thrilling is because I grew up in Upland. And so I have been so thrilled to see awesome, God-fearing men lead God-exalting churches and uh, in my backyard that I grew up in. And so I am absolutely thrilled uh, that uh, to be here, to see this church rising out of uh, nothing, really, and to become in this area, to fortify this area for the name of Christ. Amen? We want Christ to reign in Rancho. And we want it to rain so brightly that it affects Upland next door, okay? And so let me actually take, and here is my wife in here, Danielle, and uh, my kids back there. I have Zeke, raise your hand, Zeke. Then I have Ethan, where are you, Ethan? Then I've got Evan right there. Then I've got Emmett right back there. So those are my children. And oh, and then I have Elisa with me. So I have my daughter who goes to the master's college who abandoned us and went to college. Uh, she is also with us. Here's my daughter, Elisa. Raise your hand there. <laughs> and so uh, sometimes forgotten but always loved. <laughs> uh, let me also introduce my parents. Here are my parents right back here, Pat and Diane Hurley. And, uh, and so it's really a joy to be there. And because you're next door, to Upland, uh, we get to, they get to come here very easily. So I praise the Lord. I have a brother that lives like one road over, and there's someplace right near here somewhere. And so I am really thrilled. And I want to say to you as a church, let's go. We got work to do. And, uh, and so it is a joy to be here. And I am really praising the Lord for the fact that you are in Rancho. Uh, for the longest time, I was like, are there any God-fearing, God-exalting, serious churches? And the fact that God has raised you up is, is so thrilling. I'm a missionary in Uganda, Africa. And uh, I've been there for 15 years. And uh, crazy, crazy journey. And I'm going to tell you all about it tonight. We're going to get into the details. I'm going to tell you the crazy stories of taking a family with a three-month-old baby, a three-year-old kid, and a beautiful, awesome, incredible six-year-old girl, I'm trying to make up for it, uh, uh, from America to the middle of Africa. And so I want to tell you all about those stories, what it's like, what God has done. Uh, we ended up moving into a very small jungle, a, a very uh, real deal African village. And we have watched God literally transform that village. And so we can't wait to tell you the stories of that. And, and, our, and also we want to see God's raise up churches all across Africa, all across Uganda, let me say, and uh, all over the place. And we work with 1,500 Baptist churches. And we're working to strengthen this whole denomination and train the pastors from this denomination all throughout the country. It's fun, it's exciting, and I can't wait to share that with you tonight. How many are coming tonight? 
If you aren't, then slap your neighbor. Go right ahead. And uh, No, but we want to really invite all of you to come. I think it'll be a sweet time of fellowship. And I'm going to relate it a little bit with America. Because I think what God is doing in Uganda relates big time to America. Because many of us don't realize what it's like to, to live in America because we live in America. But when you go and you see what life is like in the other side of the world, you'll come back here and and cry as you sing god bless america because america is the greatest country in the world and you have have significant opportunity to impact the rest of the world and so i think tonight come out bring your kids we're going to hang out with them they're going to have fun right kids kids go Woo! all right awesome they're right there with me so uh so please come out tonight. I want to, before I get going, just honor a few people here. Uh, first, I want to honor uh, Mr. and Mrs. Severance. They don't want that, but they have uh, been, they're just heroes in the faith. If anybody knows them, they are just incredible people. They have always been there to just be encouraging us from afar and just people that you go, I want, I hope I, I grew up to be like them. And, uh, and so the severances, I, I had the privilege of also, secondly, being a, a, a student on the wing of my RA. Where's my RA? Where is he at there? Right here, Mark Severance was my RA. And, uh, and so he had a, a significant impact in my life when I was in college. Just a, got another godly example pointing me to love and know Christ. And so appreciate these guys for me, if you will, all right? So their impact goes far beyond. Uh, it's been a life of faithfulness. And so it's a joy to be here with these dear families as well. I find Christianity in America very unique. Because Christianity, as it is seen from America and the lives of those who put the name Jesus Christ on their chest, and that of the Bible, are two different realities. And I think that that is impacting the world around us. Christianity of the Bible and Christianity that we see around us are not the same. We have lost, really, an understanding of what Christianity is, in part because we don't really know what the scriptures have to say about Christianity and lost in part because of the fact that those who are naming Jesus Christ are not reflecting Jesus Christ. If I were to summarize in one word what a Christian is, a Christian is someone who has surrendered themselves fully and completely to do all that the king has required or asked of us to do because they love him and know his ways are the best. Because they love him and know their that his ways are what, kids? The best. Say that. Everybody, God's way is the? Yes. All right. That's Christianity. And what I want to do in, in our short time, I want to encourage you of what Christianity is. And I want to do that by taking you to Hebrews chapter 11. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11.
in Hebrews, many in this church were tempted to abandon Christianity because of persecution. And in America, we know that that is the temptation even today. We know that the days are getting more wicked. We know that uh, intolerance toward Christ and God are becoming more uh, potentialed. And as a result of that, the pressure is going to come on the church just like it did here in Hebrews. And the temptation is going to be to abandon Christianity or to reform Christianity in a Christianity that is not even Christian. Make sense? Because following Christ, following his ways, proclaiming his truth, preserving the family will be unacceptable. And as a result of that, the temptation will be to be silenced. And so Christianity is going to come at a cost just like in these days. And the writer of Hebrews comes to remind the Christians of who they are in this chapter, and I want to do the same for you. I want to remind you of what a Christian is. I want to remind you of what a Christian, what kids, is, okay? Kids, say this to me. What is a Christian? Good. Say it a little louder. You guys are awesome. Now ask, ask your parents, look at your parents and ask them, what is a Christian? Good, you guys are doing awesome. What is a Christian? Well, look with me in Hebrews chapter 11, because we see, starting in verse 38, that's exactly what's going to happen. Let me give you the flow of the argument. There's three aspects to this throw, the flow. Aspect number one is he is going to remind us of who we are. He's going to remind us of who we are. And I'm going to take you through it really quickly, and we're going to land on the third aspect. Secondly, he's going to define who we are. Remind, then define. And then thirdly, he's going to illustrate who we are. Are we together? Thank you for lying. Okay, here we go. First, he's going to remind us of who we are. Look with me in verse 38. But my righteous ones, my righteous ones shall live by what? Everyone, not just two of you, but everyone. My righteous ones shall live by? I'm sorry, what did I say? Yes, we're going to 11. Come on, come with me. No, chapter 10, look with me in verse 38. Thank you, my wonderful helper in the front row. I love it. Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew. <laughs> Where are we again? <laughs> no. Uh, Hebrews, <laughs> Grace Ranch Show, all right. Uh, Hebrews 10, look with me in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by, by faith. My righteous one, by the way, that's another description of a Christian. We are those who are righteous, not by our own righteousness, but the righteousness which what? Christ has given us, amen? And if you don't know that, you don't know the gospel. My righteous one, those who are Christians, shall live by, by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has what? No pleasure in him. 
Look at verse 39. We are not those who shrink back to destruction. Nuh-uh. That's not there. But of those who have faith to the what? Preserving of our souls. We are not those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who have what? We are those who have faith to the preserving of our souls. His comment is this. Look, don't be confused. We, I know the temptation is to run from Christianity because it's hard, but that's not who we are. We are people of what? Faith. We are people of what? We're people of faith. Don't forget it. We are people of faith. That's who we are. It's a reminder, young people and older people, we are people of faith. That's who we are. We're different than the rest of the world. God has done a work in our hearts, transformed us from sin to holy, to to his spirit, to walking in holiness, slaves of sin, to slaves of righteousness. There's been a work that's taken place. That work is called faith. Amen? You say, well, well, wait a second here. What's faith? Well, that's what he does next. He goes from reminding us to defining for us who we are. Look what he says. Now, 11 verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things what? He provides two definitions for us. First definition, faith is the assurance of things what? Second thing he says, and the conviction of things, what? He defines it in two ways. And see it with us. First, faith is this unbelievable. uh, Faith is this immovable confidence in things hoped for. Too often, this passage has been referred to as the heroes of the faith. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about who you and I are. Who you and I are to be. This is about all of us. And too often we have made the super Christians and then the normal Christians. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about who everyone who is truly a Christian is. Everyone who's truly a Christian is a person of faith everyone and so the question is here before you is are you a person of faith i know you've been hanging around christianity a long time but the question is are you a person of faith the definition will begin to show us whether we are or we are not. And I want to ask you to allow the Spirit of God to minister to your own heart, to look within your own heart, to ask yourself these penetrating questions. Am I a person of faith? What is a person of faith? Again, the first definition is faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What does this word assurance mean? It carries the idea of conviction. It actually comes from the word foundation. 
If we build a building, this building here, if you were to set this building on fire, something would remain. What would remain? The foundation. Because the foundation is this immovable substance that is placed there by God that can't change, right? It's given to us by God, and it's this foundation that's immovable. And it's immovable in the sense that it's immovable in hoping for something. Do you have a substance deep within you that is firm, immovable, and hoping for future realities? That's what faith is. You say, well, what do you mean? What do we hope for? How many here hope for heaven? Anyone? So it's that deep-seated, deep conviction, deep earning, yearning that, yes, there is a heaven. Yes, it's worth living for. Many of us hope for salvation from our own sins when we stand before God. Anyone that way? Well, if someone of faith knows that they will be redeemed fully, Many of us hope for the blessing of God in our lives as we walk in obedience to him. We hope for future rewards. Well, as somebody, a person of faith, this hope is deep within God implanted, and it's immovable, it's girded right there, and it's living for these hope-coming realities. And we'll talk more about this. There's a second different definition that's given to us. Here in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the conviction of things not seen. Conviction involve, involve, implies compulsion to live out. It's so deeply within us that we can't help talking about it. it, it it's it's, it's in, intertwined within our inner person. But it's this compulsion for what? What does it say? The conviction for things what? Kids, look. Look at 11.1. It's a conviction for things what? Not seen. In our day and age, if you're trusting in something you can't see, they call that foolishness. Am I right? Thank you. But 1 Peter 1.8 says, though you have not seen him, you what? You love him. Look with me in verse 3. He says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. Now let me ask you a question. How many were here when God created the world? Severances, you've been here a while. <laughs> Santa, you look young, but that beard can be deceiving. Were you here? No. None of us were here. But how many believe that God created the world? You see, and many of us would die for that truth. Why? Why do we have this deep conviction that God created the world, but we were not here to see that creation? Why? Because People of what? Of faith. There's this deep conviction within us. We know God created the world. You can't tell me there's no God. I know it. It's deep within me. It's this compulsion that affects everything I what? 
do. That's the definition he provides of faith. There's a third aspect and flow of this text and that then brings us from the definition to then the illustration. So when you look at verse 2 all the way to throughout the chapter through verse 40, he gives illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration of people of faith. He says, let me not just define it, let me illustrate it. Let me make it practical in the lives of all those who've gone before us. And that's what he does. He goes from reminding to defining to illustrating for us what a Christian is. Now, I obviously don't have time to go through each individual life, but what I've done is I've taken five characteristics of a Christian from this section. How many? Five characteristics. You guys are really good Africans. I really appreciate it. You guys respond to me. You know, you're not frozen chosen. I really like it. Come on. So there are five characteristics that we see when we pull these examples. And I want to show you this so that we could see what a Christian is and what we are to be. Are you ready to go with me? Characteristic number One, characteristic number one of a Christian or a person of faith is this. A Christian is a person who confidently lives in light of the word of God. It's a person who confidently lives in light of what? The word of God. Look with me starting in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Noah was what? Warned by God. Good job. Now check this out. How many of you, if you were asked to go to a dry desert and build an extremely large boat, would say, I'm in? No one. That's weird. (laughs) No one would. Why in the world would you go and build a boat in the middle of a dry desert? And then here's, you're you're building it and everybody's coming out to do what? To laugh, of course. Sometimes we need to allow the story of the Bible to become real, that we see what would it be like to be Noah? What would it be like to build this boat? Where did he get the wood? He had to go cut it down, prepare it. Your whole life you're living to build a boat in the middle of a dry desert using your own resources, being called a fool. Why would he do something like that? He tells us why. Because he was warned by God. Because he was warned by God. It was the word of God that motivated the man of God to do what God called him to do. He was driven by this book. 
Look at another example. Look with me at, at, at verse uh, 8. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing what? Where he was going. I moved to Africa. I went with my wife. Imagine me being Abraham. And I told her, she said, where are we going? I said, Uganda, all right? That was crazy enough, right? Abraham comes back to Sarah and says, honey, baby, we want to move. And you know, Sarah's like, where are we going? And he says what? I don't know. Try and sell that one, men. He didn't know where he was going. So why did he go? Why did he leave his family? Why did he leave everything he knew? Why? Because he was what? Called by God. When he was called, he obeyed. It was the word of God that moved the man of God. Look at Sarah. By faith, verse 11, Sarah herself received the ability to receive even beyond the proper time of life. Why? How, what gave her that ability to conceive beyond the normal age since she considered him faithful who had what? Promised. It was the promise that motivated and drove her. She knew that if God promised it, this baby's coming. It was the word of God that moved the woman of God. You can go and look at the life of Isaac and, and Joseph and, and Esau and, and, and Jacob. And what would cause in verse 21, Joseph to say, hey, when I die, I, I want you to, when you go to Israel, take my bones with you. Why would he say that? Because he knew the promises of God and was motivated and driven by those promises. Are we together? You want to know whether you are a Christian? Let me ask you a question. Do you live in light of this book? Do you live in light of this book? Is this what drives you? Is this what changes every decision you make every day? A Christian and all these men have lived in light of these promises. They live in light of this book. Dear friends, this book is not just to be studied. This book is to be put to test. It's to be lived out. It's to be what drives us in our lives. Our whole lives are to be lived in light of what God has said. We're driven by the word of God. It's not about our theology. It's about our practice. But our theology informs our practice. We know that you can be a tree planted by the streams of water, right? but you need to delight in God's word and meditate it on day and night. Do you delight on it and meditate it? That shows whether you believe that you can be a tree or not. When I got married to my wife, I was so afraid, completely scared, because I didn't want to marry bad. You don't get in marriage to marry bad, right? But the Bible said if I find a God-fearing woman, 
who walks in God's ways that I will be happy. And though I was extremely afraid, I put my confidence in those promises and I walked with confidence despite the fears I might have in my heart. And let me say here today, wow, I'm glad I married Danielle. And the Bible is what? True. This is such a crazy reality. When I got called to move to Africa, I'd been through seminary, and I'm in the middle of Africa, and, and I had been a businessman. The Lord had been successful. I'll tell you all about that and stuffed animals and things like that tonight. And I had come from a successful businessman, and I decided in the top of that to run to Africa and, and see what God was doing. When I got there, they gave me this opportunity to train pastors. And I remember at the end of that opportunity going, oh my goodness, these people need truth. Someone's got to give it to them. And they're asking me to give it to them. I remember at the end of that trip, walking up the stairs of the plane, looking out, thinking, I don't know anyone in this country. I don't know anything in this country. Am I really willing to do this? I sat down in the plane and in God's kindness and grace, I read Hebrews 11 on the way out. And then I sat down, I read it again, and I asked myself this question. Do I really believe this book to be true? Now check this out. I just graduated from seminary. And I'm asking myself the most fundamental question there is because I realize there's only one thing that's going to cause me to leave the world in which I know to live for a world to come, and it's this. Because people need this, and I believe it's the truth, and, and I want to die that people would know it. That's why I left for Africa. A Christian is not one who just knows the truth. A Christian is one who lives the truth. There's a second, and then let me just ask, say this, when the next trial comes, don't let yourself look at the trial, but look at the word of God. The next time a temptation comes, we're not those who look at the temptation and go be led by lust. We're those who take and look at the word of God and let out of lust. My dear friends, when you look at your life, are you driven by the text? That's what Christians are. Second characteristic is this, and I'll move quickly. Hang out a little while, and I've got to move quickly. Second characteristic is this. A Christian or a person of faith lives for heaven. Lives for what? Kids, lives for what? Kids, look at your neighbor and say, do you live for heaven? Go ahead and tell them. Look at your parents and say, mom and dad, you live for heaven? You guys got quiet on me. I don't know what happened. <laughs> parents are hitting you on the head. I don't know. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham lived as an what? No longer African. What's going on? Here we go. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, or he, lived as an what? 
an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is what? Is God. Abraham left his home to wander in a tent. Why would you do that? Why would you leave what is established and leave in a tent to live as an alien, as a wanderer from place to place? Who does that? A Christian is one who lives for heaven. Look at verse 26. Speaking of Moses, it says, Moses, consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses left Egypt where he had everything to go into a wilderness. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Look at Jesus in 12.2. Jesus fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, what? Set before him, he endured the cross, despised his shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let me help you, my brethren. And this is a really needed reminder to all of us. A Christian is not one who lives for this present reality. A Christian is one who lives for the kingdom to come. We are kingdom seekers. That's why Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in what? Heaven, from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 6.19 says we do not store treasures on this what? But rather we, we, but rather we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We are those who live for the future kingdom, not for the present reality. That's what defines our person. We hate the world. We don't love the world or the things of the world, right? Or the love of the Father is not what? In us. Really a gut check for all of us. What are we living for? So much of Christianity is being defined by those who are not living true Christianity. And we just go and are blind leading the blind. The mold must change and we must be true Christianity. Do we know that the word Christian came because disciples of Jesus were living so radical that everybody was laughing at them because they were being called little Christs. Do we live in such a way where they go, ah, little Jesus, <laughs> look at the little Jesus. That's what Christian, the term Christian came from. It was a derogatory term. Being said, you're little Jesuses. My dear friends, do we live for heaven? You say, Shannon, well, what does it mean to live for heaven? I told you I was a businessman. And uh, in God's kindness and the weirdness of his sovereignty, I did stuffed animals, custom stuffed animals. I did things like Scrack and Grinch that stole Christmas and crazy stories i'll tell you tonight so i'm giving you a commercial by the way uh and um i did all these things 
and the Lord blessed it. And I asked myself when I did one, why, God, did you bless this job? And two, what does it mean to be a godly businessman? Because I was flying all over Asia. I was in Chicago, in New York, doing all these different trade shows, gone probably a week, a month, while in seminary for some of that time. I remember just thinking, I need to understand what it means to be a godly businessman. And when I realized that God was blessing this toy job for the purposes of Africa, then I started SOS Ministries so I can give. Because if God blessed it for this, then I better walk in obedience and give, right? So I give, give, give. Well, the more I give, the more excited I am to what? To work. Because if I can make money and that I can give for kingdom purposes, then wow, this gets exciting. It became awesome. So for me, it was taking my money and using it for kingdom purposes. And it was doing my work with quality. I remember being on the phone trying to share Christ with somebody, and my boss comes by and hears me, and he says, Shannon, I don't pay you to evangelize. I pay you to sell toys. And that was really good. And so we make a difference by the fact that we work with excellence unto who? Unto God. So even our work is kingdom because we do it unto God, not unto a boss. And we then take those resources and we use them for eternal purposes, not earthly ones. For a housewife, it's being the helper that God has called you to be. It's making sure that your home is run in such a way that honors the Lord and is there to bring joy to your children and training ground for future servants of the king. My dear friends, we need businessmen who are going to live for heaven who are going to be radical. We need godly wives there to set the tone of that home by their godliness. It's not all of us becoming pastors, but rather all of us using our professions as a vehicle to advance the glory of God and the gospel. Do you live for heaven? All of us have our day. But what do you do with your morning? What do you do with your night? What you do with your time and what you do with your money will define what you live for. What are you doing? Characteristic number three. Characteristic number three. A Christian is a person who abstains from sin. A Christian is a person who abstains from sin. Look with me in verse 24 and 25. Start with there, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather ill treatment, choosing what? Everybody choosing what? Verse 25, ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Let me ask you a question. Notice that Moses did not, he gave up the passing what? Pleasures. How was sin defined? How was it? Passing what? 
pleasures, meaning they don't come and stay and you live in this, in this pleasure-enjoying situation. They come and they what? Go. It's the passing pleasures of sin. He did not choose the passing pleasures of sin. He chose rather what? Suffering. And we're going to talk about that in a second. John Piper well said, when it comes to sin, our chief enemy is the lie that says sin will make me, my future happier. Our chief weapon is the truth that says God's way will make us what? Happier. And faith is what is satisfied in God. A Christian is not one who runs to sin, who wraps himself in sin, but we are those who are slaves, rather, of righteousness. Let me define a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been set free from what? Sin. We're set free from sin. Sin wraps itself around an unbeliever. And all they care about is self. Sin, God comes and sets us free from sin, and then he makes us enslaved to him by his spirit. What defines us is that we're slaves of righteousness, not slaves of sin. And so therefore, when we are at, because the spirit of God's in us, and sin is coming and tempting us, we want to run. We don't want to get near it. And when we get near it, we're convicted by the spirit of God, and we're compelled this direction. What about you? Your friends, let me help you understand and remind you that the pleasures of sin always end in the misery of the sinner. Always. If you're a man here today, there's no question that you are impacted by that device called your telephone. When you give yourself to the pornography that is there, it will never bring pleasure. It will always bring pain and what? Destruction. We are not those who give ourselves to that. And so if you are one who's getting caught in that, and the Bible says you can easily get caught, you run from it, and you run and get help because you want to be a slave of what? And that's what will define you. Amen? Fourth characteristics, characteristic, a Christian or a person of faith chooses to suffer. A Christian or a person of faith chooses to suffer. We just read that Moses chose rather than the pleasures of sin, he chose the ill treatment with the people of God. When we look at those words, they're fascinating. Who chooses ill treatment? A Christian does. We choose to honor Christ than go the direction of our friend. His life enjoying the did not chose not to live to enjoy the thrills of the world and said he chose ill treatment. Look at verse 36 through 38. Here's what other Christians did. It says in verse 36 that others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, chains and imprisonments. 
They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were tempted and they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and in mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. My dear friends, this is what they chose. This is what they chose. This is what we choose. And we have to understand as the world gets pressing upon us, we stand and we choose to be mistreated. We don't care. Our life is not our own. We're living for a future kingdom that does matter. This life doesn't matter. We don't fear those that cannot destroy the body. We fear him who destroys what? The soul. This is where our faith becomes reality when we look at the ill treatment in the face and we say, I'll choose it. Some people say, well, do you love being a missionary? Would you rather be there than here? Let me tell you something. No. No. People will never understand the challenges and the trials that you go through in that field. Starting with nothing in the middle of a, in the middle of a village where nobody trusts you, nobody likes you, you grow up and, and you're not one of them. You're always begging for money and, food and, and things because you've got to advance your ministry. And oh, they're a missionary. Let me tell you, life has been hard. It wasn't fun having my daughter grow up without friends because of the fact that she's a white girl in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yes, God has blessed super abundantly. But the process has not been easy. And the only thing that makes it on that field is that you're living not for this reality, but you're living for a kingdom to come. Oh, who cares about this life? Who cares? I'm going to meet a king in the end of the day. And that's what makes it. That's why you live. The only We are all called to be missionaries. That's what the calling of every single one of you is. You were saved that you might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But you can't have your attachment here. You have to look beyond here to the future reality and choose to suffer. Because you're living for kingdom. And you believe this is the truth. You know it's the truth. And this is completely against our culture because our culture is enslaved to protecting themselves from suffering. I mean, this whole coronavirus thing is crazy. Can I say that? Are you allowed to say that? I'm like, I'm an African now. And I'm like, you guys are weird. And you're making all of us weird. We're wearing masks in the middle of the village. What are we wearing masks? The, what? We know it doesn't kill anybody. Or not most. Okay, now I'm overstepping my line. <laughs> Trump didn't get me to say this, okay? <laughs> no, but why are we running around? with? Because we're all so worried about what? Protecting ourselves. We're enslaved to security. When I went to move to Africa, I'll never forget my infectious disease person literally she's like oh you can't take your kids there like, she was so adamant 
she called us later on to say, hey, I just want to warn you one more time. Do you realize the diseases that are there? And you thank her for that. But it's not very comforting as you're moving to Africa to learn about all the diseases. I remember saying to my father-in-law as I went to leave, I don't know what's out there. But if I die, take care of my family. You realize that missions advancement has been because many have chosen to live a crazy life. And I want to call you that this is not for missionaries, for missionaries. This is for what? Christians, of which you and I are all Christians. Somehow we've separated the secular and the sacred. Merge them together so that we could see the name of Christ made great in our areas. People want to know, do you really believe it? And they'll know you really believe it when you're willing to suffer for the purposes of it. Make sense? Christian is people who live by faith, so therefore we choose to at times move from a bigger home into a what? Smaller home. And not, not only that, but sometimes we choose to go from a smaller home into a bigger home because a bigger home can provide more ability to care for the flock and care for people. We need big homes to enable kids to come and run and love Jesus together, right? Play pickleball. What in the world? Pickleball. It doesn't look like a pickle. If that's what the Lord has blessed you with, then get those bigger homes. But do it for the right motivation, king and kingdom. For we are those who choose to turn off the television and stop watching what the world is watching because we know it doesn't please the Lord. And we would rather be in a Bible study than with a bunch of friends that don't love Jesus Christ. We'd rather be made fun of that we can reflect Christ. We'd rather stay up late to bear the burdens of others, to be disliked, that they would hear the truth. Oh, dear friends, a Christian is one who chooses to what? To suffer. Fifth characteristic of a Christian, a person of faith, according to these examples, and you go back and read this on your own, you'll see these pop out at you. A Christian is someone who lives a radical and exciting life. They live a what? Radical and what? You say, Shannon, that word radical is dating you. We don't use that word anymore. Oh, but it's still a good word. What do I mean by radical? What I mean is we do not do what the natural man would do. We don't do what everybody else would do. We build arcs in the middle of a dry desert. We walk around cities. You know, you hear the, they're walking around a city. This is a war strategy. Let's walk around seven times. Who does that? Nobody does that. We go and we give our money away to advance eternal purposes. Who does that? Radical people do. We do what the natural man would never do, not for the purposes 
of natural things. Some people do it for tax exemption status, but natural people do it because they care about the advancement of God's name. Not only are we live radical lives, but our lives are exciting. You say, what do you mean by exciting? We see God do what is humanly impossible. We see God do what is humanly impossible. We see God part a Red Sea. Can you imagine? You're, you're, you're up against the armies coming to kill you, and all of a sudden, that would have never happened if they were not what? Radical. But then, if they, then you see God do unbelievable things. And when, when they're walking around this city the seventh time, they're probably going, oh my goodness, I can't believe what, Moses, what, what Joshua's having us do. I mean, and we're walking around this city, and we know that we're going to blow these trumpets, and we're like, well, and I hope this works. They blow the, the trumpets, and what happens? The walls come down. You know what they did from there? They screamed, whoa, yeah! I mean, it was crazy. It was exciting. I just woke up that child. <laughs> it was exciting because they saw God do what was humanly impossible. How about Daniel in the lion's den? Who gets thrown to hungry lions and then spends the night petting them all night? Because see, when you do radical things and then God does impossible things. Let me tell you. To go in Uganda and see what God has done in Uganda will bring any one of us tears, including myself. To go out of my front door and look around at the 70 buildings made there, you think, how in the world did God do this in 11 years? To go and see all the lives today where you have 400 people who didn't know Jesus now in a church building worshiping Christ with such passion and, and, and excitement. You see God do the impossible. And let me tell you, it's just begun in Uganda. It's just begun. My dear friends, I wonder at times we don't see God do great and exciting things because we don't live great and radical lives of faith. The testimony in my own life, the more radical you live a life of faith, the more you see God do incredible things. And I'm not saying be weird. When you're advancing the cause for Christ, Resting in him to do, man, to see what God does along the way is amazing. Greatest gift you can give your children is true, biblical Christianity that lives in light of these truths, that lives with their lives focused on heaven, that runs from sin, that chooses to suffer, and that lives a radical and exciting life. We need to show the world true Christianity because 
we serve a true Christ. Amen? I want to ask a favor of you. I grew up in Upland. I love my parents with all my heart. I love my brothers with all my heart. We need to rock this area for Christ. In Romans chapter 1, it speaks of how the faith of the Romans spread throughout the world. Can we let the faith of Grace Rancho spread throughout this area? Guys, people need Jesus. You have him. Now let's get radical to take him to the homes that are around here. So that we, can, we can't change all of America, but we can change our communities. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have risen this church. And I just think of this church radical and exciting. Who, li- who changes and, and moves from Simi Valley to Rancho Cucamonga? Who does that? People that are crazy. People that are called. People that are moved by your word and living for a kingdom that's beyond here. People that are radical. But Lord, to see the miracle of this place right here as all of these people are now gathering in your name is exciting. It's all your fingerprints at work. Oh, living God, may you bless this church. May you make them all lovers of your word, disciplers of their community, and agents through which you get glory. We love you and praise you and thank you for this sweet time. And we look forward to tonight that your spirit would move and work through what you are doing and that your name would be made great. The praise of your name we pray. Amen.